0: Welcome to Writing the Past, a space where historical fiction writers share their experiences and advice on bringing the past to life. I'm your host, Isla Finn. Hello everyone and welcome to the third episode of Writing the Past. In the last episode we spoke with Bethany Hudson about how acting impacted her as a writer, viewing history through the lens of fiction, And the advice she would give herself when she was just starting out as a historical fiction writer. Now we're chatting with Helena Barnard whose debut novel A Painted Winter has just been released. It tells the story of two Pictish brothers who conspire with the ancient people from beyond the Great Wall to attack the Romans. Helena was born in Australia and she now lives in Northern England at the foot of Hadrian's Wall. In this episode we'll find out what inspired Helena to write historical fiction, and will discover her path to releasing her debut novel with an independent publisher. She'll also describe her writing and researching process, including what it's like to write about a civilization that we know very little about. Helena, it is so great to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, I love. It's so great to have you here. So first off, we have to ask you a super important question. If you could have dinner with any person in history,
1: who would it be and why? The person that I ultimately um, chose for this is Lady Aethelflaed, um, who was Alfred the Great's daughter. Alfred was um, the Anglo-Saxon king of Wessex, and he fought against the Vikings for control of what we now call England in the 10th century, and Aethelflaed, his daughter, became ruler of, ruler of Mercia, a neighbouring Saxon kingdom. And I, the reason why I chose her is um, she was pretty cool in her achievements, but also just because in the medieval period it was so unusual for women to be recorded um, by history at all, let alone for a woman to have um you know uh, taken over from her husband when he fell ill she led armies into battle and refortified burhs that had been sacked by the vikings and i think it would just be really interesting to talk to her and get a perspective on you know what it would have been like uh as a female ruler in in a very much a man's world definitely i i mean
0: i have to admit the most i know about athelflaed is from um, the last kingdom series <laughs> <laughs> like the one by um by Bernard Cornwell I feel like their portrayal of her was really good like you could see she was a super strong woman and I think she would definitely be super interesting to talk to for sure so what what first got you into writing what
1: what first made you think I want to be a writer you know I can't remember a time when I wasn't writing stories I actually still have this little book that i wrote when i was 4 or 5 and in crayon and it's you know with terrible illustrations and it's about a caterpillar who is traveling around the world definitely not a bestseller i just i've always sort of been been writing little stories and i think when i when I went to university and, and I studied law and I was a lawyer for a number of years, I've sort of really put my creative pursuits like on the back burner. Then when the idea of a painted winter um, came to me, um, I sort of, Felt really passionate about it again and decided to pursue um, writing more seriously.
0: I think I was the same as you. I made a book out of crayons and it was about a polar bear or something. And I think I did the illustrations and everything, <laughs> stapled it together. And I was very proud. Like, yeah, not a bestseller either, but who knows, maybe one day. <laughs> um, so, so obviously you've, you've always felt like you've been writing and, you know, that's always been something that's been important to you. At, at what point did you become drawn to historical fiction in particular?
1: I think that was um, it was sort of middle or high school, so I think I would have been like 14 or 15. Um, I'd always loved history, and I had some really um, passionate history teachers when I was in school. And I felt when I was reading some historical fiction um, novels, um, Sharon K. Penham was the, the, sort of the first historical fiction novelist who I came across her, her Welsh trilogy and her War of the Roses book The Sun and Splendour. And I, I, it sort of just really struck me how... You know, historical fiction is a really engaging and immersive way to learn about history, and to feel like you're actually experiencing the lives of people from the past. You know, really good historical fiction makes me feel like I can touch and smell and see what I imagine people from the past experience. So, yeah, I, th- I think I think that's why I've you know felt really drawn to to it as a genre that I like reading and also as something that I wanted to to write um, myself. So, um, congratulations on, on your new book, A Painted Winter,
0: coming out. So, um, just as a re- quick reminder for people listening, um, Helena's book tells the story of two brothers from the Pictish kingdom who want to take revenge against the Romans for attacking their city, killing their father and enslaving their mother. And when they meet a mysterious woman, this sets them on the path to warfare. So, Helena, why did you want to write about this particular time in history?
1: So a few years ago I was traveling in Scotland and I started to engage closely with the history and archaeology of Scotland more broadly but in particular the Picts. I just found it um, fascinating especially that that sort of early period the the, you know there were the Iron Age peoples of Scotland and their conflicts with the Romans who were trying to conquer their lands. As part of researching or sort of just generally reading about the Picts I came across references to the barbarian conspiracy, which I won't go into details here because it's sort of a spoiler (laughs) for my book, but it's basically a a fourth century conflict between the Picts and the Romans. It's just really fascinating and and it's a a little known moment in history that was influential in ending the Roman occupation of Britain and it's actually not very well covered even in sort of literature either and so I thought it would be really interesting to, um, to shine a light on that moment in history.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's something that's so fascinating. And it's um, such an ancient time. And uh, I think you've got so many ancient battles going on, and especially when that can turn a tide into something bigger. It's really amazing to be able to follow that through a story, which which kind of leads on to the question, how did sort of the storyline or the plot of A Painted Winter come to you? Was it something that just happened instantly? Or was it almost as you researched it? How did the story first come to you?
1: And it's just one of those sort of moments of having sort of been reading a lot about this period just for general interests and then you sort of have a dream, and the story it comes to you. I, I know that sounds a little bit cliche, but yeah, I just, I just sort of like had a dream about the sort of um, the core plot. But then something that was really interesting to me that I wanted to explore was that, you know, the the pigs unfortunately didn't record their their own their own history, and the historical records that do survive are from the sort of Roman perspective or the enemy perspective. And I thought it would be interesting and important to show these conflicts from the Pictish perspective, um, you know, what they thought about the conflicts of the Romans and also how they thought about themselves because, you know, Scotland at this time was, you know, made up of lots of different tribes or, or kingdoms. And it's interesting to learn that, you know, not all of them saw Rome as an enemy. Their relationships with each other, like the different tribes and with Rome, was, was really complicated. And even people living in what we now know as uh, you know as England who had been occupied um, by the Romans for hundreds of years at that point. They did not necessarily identify as Roman. They'd held on to their sort of Celtic religions and languages and practices. And so I found those things sort of really, really interesting to draw them out in my book. But in terms of the sort of core plots that, that sort of just randomly came to me in a dream after sort of, yeah, just generally reading this kind of history. <laughs> It's like everything falls into place the more you read about it, it's like those light
0: bulb moments. So you described this civilization which didn't record its own history. So what did that look like for you in terms of the research process? Was it quite challenging in a way because you maybe had less Information compared to other civilizations. So, in terms of
1: the the Pictish sort of research, a lot of it is based on the archaeological sort of evidence, sort of extrapolating from that how we think that they might have actually lived. The sort of big picture plot that is recorded by some Roman chroniclers. Um, so, there's this some history that I was able to draw on there. But a lot of my Pictish research was based on the archaeology. Another element of of the book um, which isn't I guess super clear from from the blurb is Roman Britain um, more generally so so in England and there is actually a lot more historical as well as archaeological um, evidence for that but I'm sure this is something that's uh, the same for you but with research I I really just start quite broadly. Um, You don't really know what you're doing necessarily um, or what you're looking for. You're just sort of taking a really big picture approach and then uh, as, as you get more insights into it, know what you're looking for. <laughs> so many nights I ended up spending like 12 hours down various rabbit holes trying to work out why didn't the pigs eat fish? Or trying to decide whether the pigs actually wore pants. (laughs) Um, I'm sure it's a similar experience for you.
0: I remember in one of my first drafts, I got really caught up in the details of medieval beekeeping. And I think I ended up dedicating three chapters to it. And I had to say to myself, come on, Isla, like, seriously, no one cares. Like, yes, it's interesting, but it's not like worthy of three chapters. And you kind of get Sometimes you learn something in your research, and it's so interesting. Like, and you go down that rabbit hole. But I mean, afterwards, it's I feel like no research is useless because it all, you know, it all builds that picture of the world in your head, and that's really important. But yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on
1: the rabbit holes. I've I've been in some interesting ones myself. I find that actually really interesting. Saying that, you know, you know, there's that saying of like um when you're sort of like editing books and you have to sort of kill your darlings. Um, and usually that's talking about like maybe, you know, characters or certain phrases that, you know, just don't work. But with historical fiction writers, I feel like The Darlings is actually like some really obscure historical fact that you picked up on and you thought it was really cool, but nobody else does and you have to get rid of it. <laughs>
0: That is so true. And it's, it's even more painful because you spend all that time researching it. You know, it's not just something that's necessarily come from your brain. It's something you could have dedicated years researching a certain paper or reading through archives. And it's definitely a bit more painful for sure. <laughs> yeah. So... So we've talked about your research process, and I'd love to also know how you would describe your writing process.
1: What did your writing process look like during during this time? Writing the second book was a really different experience, much more structured um, and with a routine. But we're talking about A Painted Winter. So for that one, my first book, I was working full time as a lawyer and, and studying my master's. Um, of laws and part-time and so I was really really pressed for time but you know I was highly motivated to write um, but I was just sort of like really desperately trying to fit writing in around all those other commitments I would end up writing at odd hours like really early in the morning or really late at night one of the things that I did was I would always take a pen and paper if it were with me and because ideas would just tend to come to me at really inconvenient times like especially in really boring meetings I'd just get these ideas about like a scene I was working on or or whatever and I'd scribble something down and then um, I'd come home and I'd have like all these incoherent notes that I'd have to like decipher and then transcribe Um, so it was a bit of a chaotic process I didn't really have a routine it was just very desperate which which is different to sort of um, my experience of writing the second book. Is it the same for you? Do you get to sort of have more of a routine more structure or is a bit more haphazard i'm the same as you i'm fitting writing around a
0: full-time job so it's very haphazard and i don't know about you but sometimes i have months where i'm super motivated and i'll be writing yeah 500 words a day let's go and then other months when i can't do anything at all and i get frustrated but i think it's just part of the journey and i think it's really different for everyone i think the thing that's encouraged me recently is just doing small steps every day i used to be very all or nothing and I've recently come to terms with the fact if I, like, I can't go 100% that I can give maybe 25% here or there. And over time that still creates a novel in the end. And it's just about being less perfectionist about when and how I do it. So that's kind of the journey I've been on with it recently. But that's interesting. So for your first book you felt it was sort of just fitting it in wherever you had time. For your second book have you noticed a change in the way you write or the way you go about it?
1: Yeah, so at the moment um, I actually uh, have had the opportunity to sort of dedicate myself full-time to writing. Uh, so I have an actual structured routine, but I still treat it as a as a full-time job. Just, just for me personally, I, I, I benefit from having structure and deadlines and, and routines. So during the set sort of eight hours that I like to work in, I will actually just write as though it's a job. It's a lot more relaxing than... <laughs> what it was to the first book that was that was chaotic and and it took so much longer like I think one of the things that with writing that people don't often appreciate but which you'll understand is that these things take a really long time like even just to get out a first draft takes years and especially with historical fiction where you have to do all the research but having now the the sort of time to sort of just fully devote to it, it it's like half the time that it's taken to to write it so yeah very very different experience i'm not really sure what's better in terms of output because i think sometimes think that people work better under pressure the sort of energy and chaos of writing when you've got a full-time job like there's something actually quite thrilling about that, which just what isn't the case with what I'm doing right now.
0: Was it a big lifestyle change to go from fitting and writing around wherever you could to then doing it full time? I'm just wondering what that transition was like in terms of your life, the way your life looks. Was
1: it, did you always want to write full time? It's sort of a weird one, isn't it? I, I I feel like when I grew up, like having a nine to five job was sort of like the goal, like that that's what people do and that devoting your life full-time to creative pursuits is not what you do so i'm not i think i I think i always liked the idea of being able to do writing but whether i actually thought that i'd be able to write full-time i don't actually think that i ever really seriously thought about that or thought that that was an option and in fact it's only because I spent so long as a lawyer that I was able to do this now unless you are very privileged you're not going to be able to just start off as like a you know 20 year old or 18 year old as like a full-time writer like these things do take time in terms of you know getting getting income and you have to be able to fund yourself so yeah I'm not really sure it was a, a feasible dream or something I ever really thought that I would would do. Awesome so once
0: the book was done, uh, what did your journey to publication look like? Yes, yeah, so, I
1: mean, once I had a, you know, I don't know what number draft it would be. You always have done so many drafts before you even considered doing anything with it. Um, <laughs> But um, I knew some people who were starting up an independent publishing company in Australia, which I'm from Australia, and I sent them a copy of my manuscript, so unsolicited manuscript submission, and they liked it. It's a unique publishing environment, I think. I mean, I don't really have a lot of experience, but it's traditional in a lot of respects. But, you know, as I understand it, it's a lot more collaborative approach than you know, more established environments, um, which, which sort of suits me. Again, not, not that I have <laughs> uh, much else experience. The publisher brought on some really great experienced professionals to work with and I had the opportunity actually to work with two different editors um, on this and, and that taught me a lot about writing and it also taught me a lot about myself in terms of dealing with constructive criticism. You sort of have to really toughen up and remember the ultimate goal. <laughs> and not take things personally. The publisher also got Whittaker Designs um, to design the book cover, which is which is amazing. Um, Sarah Whittaker, that is, she's an artist from York. She did the book cover and I, I remember seeing sort of like some early like images of the book cover. For the first time, I felt like I've actually written a book. That was the point. No other point until that point did I actually think oh, I've written a book.
0: It's just such an amazing journey
1: as well. Did you have to go through many revisions with the publisher? Or? Even though you have your drafts, you still go through like developmental editing with the editor that they give you. So looking at your broader plot, but also your character development, a lot of changes were made at that point. One character in particular with, um, with Bray, my male point of view character, a lot of changes were made on his character through the developmental edit process. Once that we were happy with sort of how the... I guess the storytelling portion of of the manuscript was looking then you go through what's called line editing or I think some people call it copy editing, I, th- I think it's line editing but That's sort of looking at more of a a technical, how each line actually sounds, are there better ways to write things, do your metaphors if you use them, do they make sense or did you um, bungle them like I did a couple of times and they they fix all those kinds of things and then it goes through the sort of more final stages which is um, really the the really technical kind of editing where somebody um and thank gosh i never have to do these things but like you know checking all the like grammar and full stops and all that kind of stuff and then the final final thing is Proofread. When when it's at the developmental and line edit stages, that's where you get you receive basically the editor is sort of like redlining your book, but you know on a computer. But you come back with all these notes, and that's what I mean about sort of having a thick skin with regards to constructive criticism because up to that point, you've kind of like you've written this thing and that's like, it's yours, it's your baby, you've invested so much time in it, you're a little bit in love with it, but you're a bit nervous about it. And then somebody comes back and they've got all this feedback and and they want to make your book a, you know, as commercial for them as possible because ultimately the business of publishing is making money and so (laughs) you have to sort of deal with that and I don't know I feel like I'm a lot more prepared for it now for the the second book going through that for the second book I'm actually I actually want that help as opposed to the first time that happened and it was a shock it was actually like bracing myself to deal with that
0: obviously you're still in the process of creating book two but is there anything you can tell us about it yet uh without giving any spoilers of course so, book one ends
1: on a, a massive uh, cliffhanger for for both um, the point of view characters, uh, sorsha and Bray, and book two basically picks up from where my Painted Winter leaves off and there is also a third point of view character who was in the first book but is now becomes a, a point of view character in the second book so I'm very excited to see how people react to the addition of a, a third point of view character in the second book. I
0: can't wait to read it I'll be keeping my eyes peeled. A lot of people listening to this podcast might also be writing historical fiction and wondering about how can they get their book out into the world? And what advice would you give to people who are looking to publish their own piece of
1: historical fiction? I think it's more common for independent publishers to accept unsolicited manuscripts, which is what I did. And it's where you, you don't have to go through the process of querying for an agent and having the agent then submit your manuscript to various publishers. So if that's something that appeals to you, have a look at their websites and see if they accept unsolicited manuscripts. Have a Have a look at their terms and do your own due diligence. But if you want to submit to them, make sure you follow their requirements carefully would be a big tip for mine. Some just want a synopsis of the first 30 pages of your manuscript rather than just sending the full thing. That's... Probably gonna annoy, them and also sometimes they might stipulate things like you know have it in times new roman 12 or something like that. Um, So make sure you follow their requirements. I think that's really important. If you get the opportunity to submit a covering letter, make sure that you remember that you're trying to sell yourself as well as the book. So you know if there's something interesting or compelling about you that's relevant to what you're writing, make sure you know you mention it. I think there's a lot of advice about writing cover letters for querying agents, and I think it equally applies to submitting to independent publishers take it seriously just because they're independent doesn't mean then they're not as stringent as you know um, as others in their decisions to publish
0: let's imagine you could go back in time which let's face it every historical fiction writer wants to do that if you could go back in time to your past self when you were just starting out as a historical fiction writer what advice
1: would you give to yourself I think I would tell myself to worry less about the accuracy of minute historical details and remember that the purpose of a book is telling a story. It's about entertainment. People want to read about compelling characters and storylines. They probably don't care if the type of you know plate that the character is eating off is an accurate representation from the time period or not. It sounds silly, but when I was initially writing, I, w- I was for some reason very concerned about whether academic professors at university, what they would think about, you know, the historical and archaeological accuracy of my book. But, you know, I've come to realise that A, they're probably not ever going to read my book. Um, (laughs) But but B, you know, that's not the measure of success for a historical fiction novel. I think the measure of success is whether the audience liked it, whether they're entertained. And and, and while it's important to have a strong historical or archaeological basis to your story, definitely, you know, don't get carried away with it because ultimately it's a work of fiction it's not an academic textbook
0: that's really good advice because, I mean, I don't know if this is true for other people, but I personally can experience a lot of fear when I'm writing because I imagine these distant academics almost looking down on my manuscript and thinking, oh, this is wrong or that is wrong. or You know, I have visions of them denouncing my book at conferences, saying this is a terrible example of this historical era. But then you really hit the nail on the head in the sense we're not historians, we're storytellers. Mm-hmm. Setting something in a historical period and so although it does you know need to be as accurate as we can make it people just want the good story at the end of the day and that's a really good reminder for me personally because I can get so hung up on whether something is right or not well Helena thank you so much for taking the time to share your experiences today it's been absolutely amazing to hear about your wonderful book and I wish you all the best with with book two and thank you so much for being here today thank you so much for having
1: me Ilya it's been um, a lovely evening (laughs)
0: Helena's book A Painted Winter is available everywhere books are sold. If you'd like to keep in touch and follow her historical fiction journey, you can catch her on Instagram under the username Helena Reads and Writes. In the next episode, we'll be chatting with Claudia Merrill, who is currently writing a novel series set in ancient times with touches of mythology interwoven with history. Writing historical fiction and organizing all your research and timelines can feel overwhelming. So in the next episode, Claudia will be sharing practical insights and tips on organizing your research and writing process in a sustainable way. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be amazing if you could follow and rate it. And if you're feeling extra nice, you can also leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. It just really helps us to get things up and running. But most importantly, thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back on here to chat with Claudia next time.